Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm film scholar and organic compound of muscle relaxants and adrenal suppressors, Noelle LaCroix. <laughs> and I'm story expert and person whose flirting should never be taken seriously, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we are here today to talk about Helpless, the 12th episode of season three. Helpless aired on January 19th, 1999 and was written by David Fury with Jane Espenson and Doug Petrie as story editors and directed by James A. Contner. All right. This episode of Still Pretty, like every episode of Still Pretty, is fully spoiled. So if you have not seen the entire run of Buffy, now is the time to get that done. Then come back and listen to us talk about it. His name is Giles. Giles. Forget it. Let's just go on patrol. Helpless, we open on Buffy sparring with Angel as they talk about her upcoming 18th birthday and their ever-present sexual frustration. The next day, Buffy plays with a phallic crystal while studying with Giles, who puts a big blue crystal in front of her and tells her to stare into the flaw. Later, while patrolling, Buffy almost gets killed by a vampire. I'm way off my game. My game's left the country. It's in Cuernavaca. At school, the Scoobies want to party for Buffy's birthday, but Buffy's a little wary of celebrations. They tend to go badly with people getting killed. She's excited about her dad coming up to take her to the ice show. And since her dad takes her every year except last year and the year before, there's no reason to think he'll bail on her until she goes home to flowers and a balloon with a bailing note attached. The next day, Buffy is in training with the crystals again, and she hints that maybe Giles would like to take her to the ice show and be her dad. But Giles is distracted as he commands her to look into the big blue crystal and find its flaw. Its flaw, it turns out, is that it hypnotizes slayers, allowing their trusted watchers to stick a syringe full of something not good into their bloodstream, which is what Giles does. No! Giles can't be bad! But he's definitely doing a bad thing, and Buffy's feeling the effects. I have no strength. I have no coordination. I throw knives like... A girl? Like I'm not the Slayer. Giles meets with Quentin Travers, supreme douche of the Watcher's Council, in the abandoned house where Travers is keeping a criminally insane vampire named Zachary Kralik in a crate, waiting to spring him on a weakened Slayer. Turns out, Travers is party planning for the Cruciamentum, a ritual that celebrates the Slayer's 18th birthday by taking away her powers and pitting her against a vampire. Giles argues that it's an archaic exercise in cruelty, and he's not wrong, but Travers tells him it's for Buffy's own good. Well, believe me, once this is all over, your Buffy will be stronger for it. Or she'll be dead for it. Asshole. The two junior watchers attend to the vampire wrapped up in a straitjacket and screaming from the crate for his medicine, which they administer with long-handled spoons and cup holders. So he's got migraines? Menstrual cramps? Who knows? Well, whatever he's got, he manages to get free and kill and turn one of the guys, so all's going exactly to plan, Travers. Well done. Jolly good. Buffy goes to visit Angel, who gives her a book of poetry for her birthday because he knows her so well, and her passion for poetry is well documented throughout the series. They have a very weird conversation about the fact that this 240-year-old guy fell in love with her when she was 15, before she was the Slayer, and the only choice we have is just to not think about it too much because, ew. That's beautiful. Are taken literally incredibly gross. I 
was just thinking that too. Giles visits Hill House only to discover that Kralik has bounced, leaving a dead junior watcher behind. Buffy walks home alone from her visit with Angel and bumps into Kralik and his new assistant regional vampire. Assistant to the regional vampire. Right. Assistant to the regional vampire, Dwight. And they chase a defenseless Buffy through the streets of Sunnydale until Giles comes racing up in his car and takes Buffy to the library where he confesses everything. You bastard. All this time you saw what it was doing to me. All this time and you didn't say a word. I wanted to. Liar. In matters of tradition and protocol, I must answer to the council. I can't. I can't hear this. Buffy, please. Who are you? Buffy gets a ride home from Cordelia and discovers that Joyce has been kidnapped by Krolik. She grabs her handy bag of vamp killing and goes out to the house ready to fight Krolik. Krolik, predictably, has issues with women, particularly mothers. And he unloads his misogynistic ranting on Joyce, whose mouth has been gagged despite being out in the middle of nowhere where no one can hear her scream anyway. It's just that patriarchy silencing women again and whatever. At the library, Travers comes by to tell Giles that Buffy entered the field of play while he makes tea like a jackass. And Giles is having none of his bullshit. I've told Buffy everything. That is in direct opposition to the council's orders. Yes. Interestingly, I don't give a rat's ass about the council's orders. There will be no test. Giles rushes out after Buffy, who is in the house facing down Kralik and Dwight with minimal luck. Kralik attacks, and Buffy runs. She finds a room covered with Polaroid pictures of her mother tied up, and Kralik attacks, but then gets hit with a migraine and needs his pills. Buffy takes this opportunity to grab the pills and run. She dives into a laundry chute and ends up in the basement with Joyce. Kralik finds them, grabs his pills, and drinks them down with water, but just as he's about to get back to Buffy, he starts not feeling so good because Buffy filled his glass with holy water. Kralik goes poof, Dwight attacks, and Giles dusts him, and all is well. For a given value of, you know, well. Giles and Buffy meet with Travers, who commends Buffy for passing her test and fires Giles for failing his. Your affection for your charge has rendered you incapable of clear and impartial judgment. You have a father's love for the child, and that is useless to the cause. The next day, Buffy tells the story to Willow and Xander. Joyce is proud of Buffy's cleverness. Buffy's just exhausted. Willow is horrified that Giles got fired. Like, actually fired. Like, unemployed. Aside from his full-time employment as school librarian, but still fired. Buffy, meanwhile, just wants her full strength back. She can't even open the peanut butter jar. Luckily, Xander is there to rush to her rescue with all his manly manliness. Give you a hand with that, little lady? You're loving this far too much. Admit it, sometimes you just need a big, strong man. I will. Give me a hand with that. All right, Noelle. So here we are with Helpless, which is one of those episodes for me. There are episodes that, for some reason, and I don't know why, are just kind of forgettable for me. And yet, when I revisit them, are goddamn delightful, and this is one of them. I love this episode. It is so great. There's so much heartbreak and all this stuff with Giles is so sad and so hard and there's all this stuff happening. It's just, it's insane. But again, I think it's just about the monster of the week. When I think about Helpless, I think about Kralik and I'm not that interested in Kralik. But the rest of the stuff that's happening here, I am fully on board for. What did you think about it? Well, I am fully on board for Kralik and I will get to that. (laughs) 
I loved this episode so much. And I also forgot about it to the point that I forgot that Giles was injecting Buffy with stuff. And when he pulled out that syringe, I was like, what the fuck? No! (laughs) And then, of course, you know, immediately remembered the whole, you know, we poisoned the slayer or whatever. And that, but it was, it's such an excellent episode and it is working on some like, big theme stuff yes. in a really big and interesting way. Um, yes. Starting with Buffy's trauma anniversary. You mean trauma-versary? Oh, my God. <laughs> I said it. I regret nothing. <laughs> I love a portmanteau as much as the next guy, but come on. All right. I'm sorry. Let's take it no. seriously because God knows we very rarely take Buffy's trauma seriously. Well, and and... The anniversary effect is a thing with trauma. Yeah, no, it is. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's something that I've experienced and it's not a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, we we open with Buffy all like, as you know, Mary, as you know, Mary, we're not <laughs> fucking. You know, like, and maybe I shouldn't say trauma anniversary because really by about the three minute mark, we've hit this push pull of like sexual tension and sexual trauma really, really hard, mm-hmm. you know. She yeah. lands on top of Angel with the, the baguette, the phallus of the bread world, you know, and Foe <laughs> stakes him and says, satisfied. And then they have yeah. that conversation about satisfaction and how they're not doing mm-hmm. it. And it's it's kind of ridiculous, but okay. Yeah. And then in the library, Buffy's fiddling with that crystal wand while she's talking to Giles. Yes. Or talking <laughs> the yeah. most phallic crystal in the history of the I universe. I love those crystal wands. They are wonderful for all kinds yeah. of things just okay um (laughs) and when he asks her what like he notices that she's fiddling Mm -hmm. with this thing when he asks her why she's anxious and she realizes what she's doing she sets the wand down like it's hot (laughs) it's great and we even get a close-up like they're doing this really really purposefully just in case you didn't notice yeah just yeah just in case you didn't notice what she was handling it's a big crystal penis so buffy has some energy to burn as she tells yes. Giles. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then she's in the graveyard and she gets, or is it a graveyard? No, it's not. She's on patrol in the um, playground. In the, um, pl- the playground. playground, right? Mm-hmm. And she gets dizzy. And the vamp ends up on top of her with the stake in this really, like, mm-hmm. I don't like the word rapey because I don't like to kind of calm, you know, yeah. I don't like, I. it feels. No, but it does have that. It, I mean, it has, a, at the very least, a sexual implication if you remove the idea of consent from that part of the discussion. But, I mean, we've talked about it. A stake is a phallic thing made of wood mm-hmm. <laughs> that penetrates the and, body. I mean, yeah. And the know. way he goes, let me know if I'm not doing this right. In this, yeah. like, oh. Well, that's clearly like a sexual so, connotation. Yeah. You know, and, of course, Buffy with a vampire on top of her when we've just mm-hmm. had this conversation about Angel and how they're not. Right. They're not doing it and oh man mm-hmm. it's just it's uh it's real real like clear that we're drawing this parallel between the terror that she's mm-hmm. feeling now which is what we see before yeah. we get a close up of her terrified face before we go to opening credits that that terror mm-hmm. she is she is some part of her is re-experiencing the yeah. the knowledge of what happened a year ago yeah because let's not forget Everything started one year ago, like 
what she's been through in that year, sleeping with Angel, Angel losing his soul, turning to Angelus, killing Jenny. She has to kill him, uh, you know, comes back. He returns like all of this stuff has happened to her within a yep. year. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a it's lot. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. There's just there's something really great i think in the in the subtext of this is all happening around buffy's birthday you know that she's feeling mm-hmm. i mean she's feeling physically weak because giles is injecting her with stuff but yeah. also the physical like feeling the trauma in the body on a trauma mm-hmm. anniversary is definitely a real phenomenon so i think it's yes. not Basically, what I'm saying is I don't think it's coincidental that this this episode about her birthday would involve um, and would center around her body in that way. I feel like the the physical Mm -hmm. body is really, really Mm -hmm. important to this episode um, in a way that is maybe, um, I don't know, maybe referencing (laughs) Buffy's Buffy's 17th birthday. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, speaking of the body, the body mm-hmm. is really it's the site of a lot of the the action and the drama and the, oh, oh, oh it creeps me out. It's so, <laughs> yeah. it, uh, it creeps me out so much. But I love this, this idea of a physically weak Buffy versus a mentally unstable vampire. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, when we talk about when we talk about the body and we talk about the body in um, fantasy or horror, putting mm-hmm. the monster, like the monster's body and how it functions and the hero's body and how mm-hmm. it functions are super, super important. And one of the ways that, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> we clue yeah. people into, you know, this is a hero, this is a villain is with how, like the strength and and power of their mind and or body right so Mm -hmm. i mean and this is i'm probably going to end up using the wrong language here as i talk about the way that this episode kind of uses those tropes of disability in fantasy Mm -hmm. and horror um so i apologize in advance but this is just kind of the theory that i'm working on with this episode um yeah because we have you know in addition to buffy being physically disabled um i mean Mm -hmm. what she really is is a regular person which is an interesting yes you know that's an interesting twist Mm -hmm. but we have jeff cober as krolik and he is incredible this physically strong guy he's a huge dude but he's got this instability like the the cognitive instability and the way he plays it Mm -hmm. is a thing of terrible beauty i absolutely love crawling as i said at the opening i love him (laughs) you know i i've never uh, here's the thing i think that it's really well done i think that the the actor does an amazing job i think that Krolik as a concept and in execution um is really well done um, it just is one of those things that like, he's so creepy and I don't particularly care for that. Like the thing about Buffy, like I don't like horror, right? <laughs> 
But Buffy is usually ridiculous mm-hmm. in its horror, so it doesn't really bother me. You know, because it's a slimy demon or it's some kind of like ladybug or something. <laughs> you know, like things like that. Like it's just, it's crazy. So most of the time, Buffy's particular brand of horror is not actually scary. In this particular instance, I think that Kralik is actually scary. So the, the, the fact that like I don't enjoy that because that's just not something that appeals to me uh, doesn't mean that it's not excellently done. I mean, actually, the fact that I don't enjoy it is probably a good signifier that it was excellently done because he's creepy. He is he like he's beyond creepy and mm-hmm. he the way he shifts the way he shifts mm-hmm. from groaning for pills with all that like gravel in his voice to totally clear yeah. and calm Shh, everything's okay now you know it, like mm-hmm. the humming and licking his fingers after he's drained this or not drained turned (laughs) you know this guy um the implication in the shot composition that we get later on that he's laid hobson or blair whoever the non-vampire guy is out on a table before i'm just calling him dwight Dwight. yeah yeah jim and dwight (laughs) i love by the way that their names are hobson and blair in 1999 like i feel like millennial like the children of millennial parents like somehow grew up and went right. back in time to be these vampires. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I think those are last names, but yeah, your but point still. remains. <laughs> you know, it feels very, were, it feels very millennial. Yeah, I think yeah. there mm-hmm. was, there was probably a Hobson and or a Blair in one of my children's playgroups. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, to all of the Hobsons and Blairs out there, your names are lovely and I'm not making fun of them. They are just very yes, much not at all. They feel very much of a time to me. Of a time, um, absolutely. But, yeah. You know, so so Kralik has like laid this body out on a table to drain it. That uh-huh. feels very I mean, it feels very Hannibal Lecter. And we get yes. several there are several moments in this episode that to me feel like they're they're maybe just borrowed a tiny little bit from the silence of the lambs um yeah or inspired inspired by by. he's definitely Mm -hmm. got Mm -hmm. that Kralik definitely has that like the Hannibal Lecter yeah the 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 unstable character who knows he's unstable Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and you know there's something terrifying about that because he leans into it that's what makes him yeah. a monster, that he takes his brokenness and he's like, great, I'm going to revel in this. You know, the like, yeah. and he tells Buffy, you know, I wish I could remember the lyrics, but my mind just isn't what it used to be in mm-hmm. this, like, but with this delight. I mean, he grins when he sniffs her coat. It's this yeah. delight in his own breaking down, um, you know, mm-hmm. as contrasted, of course, with Buffy's like horror at her own breaking right. down. She doesn't understand what's going on with her. Right, but he delights in it. But also it's a really interesting thing that we do here with him because we've had this discussion like a million times, how much of the human is left inside the vampire. And I think that Kralik is a really good argument for a fair amount because when Giles is talking about him, he's saying, you know, Kralik was, um, you know, before he was turned, he was a murderer and, you know, in a, an institution for the criminally yeah. insane. So um, so he was damaged before. And if the vampire, you know, um, taking over the body is just a clean slate, 
you know, and it is just a vampire, you know, like living inside this human body, then none of those things that come from the human experience would be transferred over into vampires. So here's again, you know, another textual I think uh, support for the idea that Giles's assertion of how vampires work in the beginning of the series was way simplified. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think that mm-hmm. that you know the writers didn't know what all they were going to do with vampires when they had Giles. Oh, absolutely. Use that, you know, yeah. use that line because I mean Giles tells us about Krolik that that. Uh, you know, he says, as a mortal, he murdered and tortured more than a dozen women, which I love yeah. the detail, by the way, that he specifically preys on women um, because, yes. of course, mm-hmm. you know, we're dealing with the themes of, you know, Buffy entering into adulthood, becoming a woman. Mm-hmm. And then he goes after Joyce and the mm-hmm. understated yeah. glee with which he says mother when Joyce rolls him over yeah. just like oh, oh it just lights me up and he's such a great great villain and mm-hmm. when he says you know and then the next thing we hear from him again he calls her mother you know he says mother may I call you yeah. mother while snapping pictures of her with his Polaroid camera oh my god I don't and I don't usually love a monologue like I don't really love a villain being like this is the reason why I am yeah. the villain. I right. think, I mean, I think that this monologue earns its space. Uh, maybe you'll disagree with me, but the way that Jeff Kober delivers this backstory is chilling and fantastic. Mother. May I call you mother? My own mother was a person with no self-respect of her own. So... She tried to take mine. Ten years old, she had the scissors. You wouldn't believe what she did with those. But she's dead to me now. Mostly because I killed and ate her, but also because I know I won't be alone much longer. I'll have your daughter. I won't kill her. I'll just make her like me. And when she wakes up, your face will be the first thing she eats. I have a problem with mothers. I'm aware of that. Yeah, here's why it's okay. Um, One, because it's really not backstory that we need to... It's not like I'm telling you this so that you're informed about this because later it's going to be important narratively. Um, It really is just a living in the moment. Like, I believe that this character would absolutely give that monologue to her because he needs her to understand why he's doing this to her because that makes it even more terrifying if he shares that. Like, by telling the story, he is tormenting and terrifying her. And that for him is fun. So because there is a purpose in the moment for that character to be telling the story, I think it's completely legit. And it's also not an explanation. Like the the bad villain monologues are the ones that are like, well, let me explain to you how I did all these things, (laughs) you know, and what I'm planning to do now so that you can figure out how to stop me, you know. Um, So those are things where we have a character who is 
pretending to talk to other characters, but they're really talking to the audience and saying, here's all the information that this writer was not skilled enough to give you in the earlier stages of this. So let me just lay all of this out so that all of your questions at the end are answered and you go home feeling satisfied, right? Um, and, uh, and so that ends up being the problem with that. But this monologue, I think, is exactly the kind of thing that is totally justified within the narrative itself. So I think you're on, you're on solid ground in loving it. So he talks about his, oh my God, this is, it's like the most Freudian thing that they just, (laughs) it is a Freudian slip in a different sense. They just slip this Freudian (laughs) backstory into Alex's narrative. I mean, did his mother cut his penis off with scissors when he was 10? Because that's what I, like, that's what I hear in that story it's uh, yeah no it sounds to me like it was it was something yeah. and you know and that would would send a kid probably into a murderous rage if his mother you know cut his penis off which is i guess uh, possible yeah i mean just the way like the the way and of course because we're in a story about the patriarchy which i can't wait mm-hmm. to talk about um right. we're in a story about the patriarchy you know when he says my mother was a person with no self-respect of her own so she tried to take mine his mother mm-hmm. i mean this is this is a really really deep read into this but his mother you know aware of her own deformity under the freudian mm-hmm. patriarchy <laughs> tries sure. to tries to take her son's power from him and yuck but also mm-hmm. also yeah creepy as fuck and also fits really well into this this evil vampire dude who tortures women i don't know yeah. i don't know but he says so something something he says um you know she's dead to me now because i killed and ate her Mm-hmm. Did he kill and eat her before he was a vampire? I oh kind of think he did. <laughs> kind of likely. I kind of yeah, think maybe think he did. He I kind of think maybe his because mother was his Because he, he was in the asylum for killing women and yeah, torment, torturing, torturing women, women before he was turned. So yeah, I think that was human Krellick. Yeah, I I have just yeah. I have just decided that in my in the fanfic story that I'm writing in my head right now right? as we record this, <laughs> Krellick's first victim was his mother and you know, and yeah. then of course he's aware of that. You know, I have a problem with mothers. <laughs> I'm aware of that. Yes. The way he grins mm-hmm. when he says that is so so delightful. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, but the bit with the cross, when Buffy comes at him with the cross. Oh, God. Talk to me. Talk to me about this. Oh, it's so <laughs> awful. It's so, I mean, because it's clearly sexual. It's clearly, she has this cross mm-hmm. that is supposed to hurt him. And he turns it around on her in this sexual way, which is, by the way, like, you know, one of the classic moves of the patriarchy to uh, turn something sexual in order to disempower women, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like gross and terrible. Oh, just a little bit lower. And he makes those sexual sounds. It's fucking horrible. I absolutely love it. I love it so much. (laughs) 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 It makes me so happy. (laughs) It makes me so happy. I love the way he plays that moment that's supposed to be painful for sexual gratification because it is hurting him. 
and he likes uh-huh. it. And that is so, oh, you know, and God. here we are like, you know, yeah. we're we're pathologizing masochism by having it show up in a character who is clearly mm-hmm. our bad guy. And, you know, and that's a problem. Pathologize it. You know, yeah. there are mm-hmm. if you if you gain sexual gratification from pain, nothing wrong with that necessarily. And <laughs> and we just like like it's not enough. Yes, but I mean, uh, but using it, but the the man using sexual context, taking something that does not have sexual context and putting it into sexual context specifically to make a woman uncomfortable, to remind her that she is a woman, which of course comes with all these cultural associations of weakness. Um, That to me is something that I really have no time for. I don't like the the masochism, like whatever (laughs) makes you happy is what, if it doesn't hurt anybody and everybody involved consents, go for it. Have a great time. Whatever it is, it's great. Um, In this particular instance, that specific you know, a uh, method of disempowering women specifically is something that I have absolutely no patience for. And it really makes me angry. Every time I see it. <laughs> and I think, and the reason that I love it is I feel like it fits so well into this character, into this overall narrative yeah. about mm-hmm. what, about what this trial is for the Slayer and what yeah. the, you know, what the Watchers Council does to these young women and like it just it's a beautiful it's a beautiful visual metaphor for the entire like bullshitty situation you know and he says to Buffy you Mm -hmm. don't seem to understand your place in all of this which is like like verbally putting a woman in her place like this is what we're doing exactly the the delight that i'm feeling is not like pro torture (laughs) or pro patriarchy Uh, it is uh, yeah uh, it is uh, that do we have a word for this this like yes this makes sense this this lines up with my experience of this narrative and like what it is right i think you're taking delight in the I think you're taking delight in the execution, in the in the quality of the execution of of representing something so accurately, whereas I am responding with uh, fury <laughs> at the fact that it reminds me of reality. So I think that like we're both on either side of what is essentially the same thing, a very effective story beat. Something that's really well done enough to make me angry because it represents reality so well and to delight you because it represents reality so well. That and what a fascinating phenomenon. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you talk about not liking horror and I have known several people in my life who've been through truly horrific experiences who say that they don't they don't engage with horror because they've had enough real terror in their lives. Yeah. And I know a couple other people who have also had real terror in their lives who engage with horror because it helps them feel less alone and crazy in what yes. happened to them. Absolutely. And I'm I'm just really like it's fascinating to me that storytelling can do this for us in these different <laughs> ways and that we can engage yeah. with the same material in mm-hmm. such different ways so i don't know that was my that was my like story beat philosophy for the episode i think it's very good yeah absolutely i mean the thing is that that fiction does 
allow us that opportunity to revisit you know, and to process whatever it is that we've been through. And a lot of times I think that the the stories that we are, I think there are like basically two ways. You're either going to lean in or you're going to avoid. Mm-hmm. Now, I am an avoider. <laughs> <laughs> I go to comedy. I go to romantic comedy. I don't care how bad a romantic comedy is. I will almost always enjoy it. You know why? Because none of this shit is in there. <laughs> Because nobody is feeding prescription drugs to a vampire? Like, what? I mean... Usually 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 not not in romantic Um, comedy. Usually not. It's just girl meets boy, girl falls down, boy picks her up, and then they move on. Yeah, um, so I, I don't know. Like, But a lot of people go to fiction specifically to deal with and process through an intermediary, you know, through the fictional characters. Uh, their own experiences, their own traumas, better understand the world around them. Um, And that is also like a completely valid way, you know, to engage with fiction. But like, I personally avoid horror, specifically because of that, because it just it's too much. It's overwhelming. I can't handle it. It does not help me process it. It shuts me down. So that's why like Buffy, which is quote unquote horror, but not really. really. No, like it's not really it is scary. There are a few points throughout the run of Buffy that are truly, genuinely frightening. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate them all. I do not enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, love getting into this dark storytelling space. So this, yeah. this you know, mm-hmm. a, a vampire who tortured women, bef- ate and tortured women, apparently, before he was a vampire... <laughs> I'm like, bring it right. on. I love it. Um, right. I do think it's really interesting, though, this relationship that Krolik has to his pills. You know, they're clearly yeah. prescription drugs. I mean, we get a close-up of yes. the bottles. We're supposed to understand, you know, this visual cue. Yeah, what doctor is writing the prescription for? Oh, I mean, I guess Travers can get yeah, anybody to write Travers anything. Can, the watch, yeah, the Watcher's still. Council can get anything they need at any Who's time. the vampire doctor who's like... Yeah, and... <laughs> Sure, just take two of these. And are these drugs that he was on before he was a vampire? And what exactly, Um, like, maybe what exactly are they giving him? Are they antipsychotic drugs? Are they muscle relaxants? I mean, it doesn't really matter. But do the pills help him? Do they hurt him? It's not really clear. What's clear, though. No, and it's never stated. It's never stated. It's never clear. I mean, to me, it appears that he's in some kind of screaming pain. And so they are pain relievers of some sort. Um, But like, does he have migraines? Like what (laughs) we never get. We have these pills. We never talk Mm -hmm. about them. We just see that he needs the pills. And of course, they figure in narratively later on, you know, his desperate need for the pills. But I mean, my my guess was migraines. (laughs) And of course, you know, menstrual cramps, whatever, it's fine. But sure, sure, but sure, maybe. The thing that I find so fascinating about this is we see, you know, we see prescription drugs, we hear his agony when he doesn't get them. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about a vampire experiencing symptoms of addiction or withdrawal yeah. like and this is what I yeah. see, you know, when I said earlier that we're doing something here with disability with with mental mm-hmm. illness that happens in storytelling that we yeah. make we just use I mean it's it's terroir, right? We use ment we right. use somebody's mental illness as a sort of 
I don't know, shorthand for this person is not okay. But of course, that only um, serves to further stigmatize mental illness. And, you know, Mm -hmm. in this case, the use of prescription drugs to manage pain. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like there's I want to like this is something where I really I really want um, the community to weigh in on this one because I'm like, like right. it makes me it makes me very uncomfortable in a way that mm-hmm. you know I don't think I don't think we talk about a lot like the relationship between mental illness as shorthand for evil and the way right. that we just that just slides into narratives. All over the place. I yep. think we're doing a better job talking mm-hmm. about it now. Um, but the the pointedness with which uh, yeah. Krolik's pill dependence, I don't know, his, his mm-hmm. use of the pills, you know, and then, of course, it's his undoing. Because Buffy, yes, mm-hmm. Buffy pours him a nice tall glass of holy water, and I love it. I love, I love that yeah. she destroys him from the inside out. I love that so yeah. much. We get a really nice reversal of the Little Red Riding Hood story, which I yes. know you have yes, some fantastic. I have some thoughts on the Little Red Riding Hood thing because we clearly and textually reference Little Red Riding Hood. We have her with the the red coat, which I freaking love. I love that coat. I want that That hooded red coat. Fantastic, amazing. Yes. Yes, we have, you know, the grandmother in the woods thing. You know, we have a lot of references to that. So clearly we are talking about Little Red Riding Hood. And Little Red Riding Hood is actually a cautionary tale about the dangers of sex. Going into the woods, into this dark place, you meet the wolf that is danger in the woods. The wolf is convincing her that she's safe. Um, And then she runs ahead to the grandmother's house and he's already there. He's already gone ahead of her, you know, Um, and he eats the grandmother. Then when Little Red Riding Hood gets there, he eats her. Um, and then a woodsman, right, because it has to be a man, comes in and cuts them both from his stomach, saving them from the experience of that male domination. It could be a rape metaphor. You know, I'm not really sure. There's a whole bunch of stuff. But then they, they all work together to kill the wolf, you know. Um, and so it's it's about sex, you know, but also that a woman's passage to safety and rescue is through the patriarchy, that you get everything that you need because we will give it to you if you behave by our rules. And that is essentially what Little Red Riding Hood is all about. And then we've got all of this, you know, reflected in the Watchers Council. And, you know, given what Little Red Riding Hood is, that the the path to safety is given is allowed through a um, through a patriarchy that also designates what the rules are of how you're going to behave right you don't go into the woods you don't do these things you know you listen to me or the wolf's going to eat you and then i'll save you you know um and so that's basically how the patriarchy has functioned all of these years by by creating a situation in which women believe that they must have the patriarchy in order to live a life in order to have any personal power uh, which of course is granted to them and meted out at the patriarchy's you know designation how they decide it should be done um so here we have buffy as little red riding hood and it's not sex that giles is leading her into thank god <laughs> um but the patriarchal traditions of the watch 
Teachers Council, um, and he is absolutely conflicted about it. Um, so you see him, like, at first we get this thing where we're not really sure, and he seems like, did Giles all of a sudden go evil? <laughs> you know, um, But it's not. It's that he is, he is, you know, administering the evil that is given to him from the, the Watchers Council. Um, so then, you know, Buffy goes to the cottage in the woods, so to speak, uh, not to bring her sick grandmother food, but to knowingly save her mother from the monster, you know, to take a fairy tale made to make girls afraid of men uh, and thus think they need the quote unquote good men to protect them from the quote unquote bad men and turn it into a story of independent feminine power while the person who is fooled, you know, is actually Giles. Giles is the one who has to have kind of the, um, the 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 blinders mm-hmm. taken off you know with regard to the watchers council like i kind of like that and then we have this line you know from Kralik, why did you come to the dark of the woods to bring all these sweets to grandmother's house and the thing is is that buffy did not bring sweets sweets are nothing mm-hmm. sweets are powerless she brought yeah. power yeah you know and i kind of yeah, love buffy that. with the crossbow in the dark in the abandoned hotel mm-hmm. really reminds me of clarice starling alone in buffalo bill's house in the silence of the lambs the the deliberate you know the the decision to go alone um Mm -hmm. you know despite not having you know in in buffy's case she doesn't she doesn't have her usual power um in the case of clary starling you know she's she is going alone she's going against protocol um Mm -hmm. there's there's a really nice little parallel there that i just appreciate so so much that yeah you know you're not you're not supposed to go into the dark dark woods but here you you know here you go deliberately and with this you know with this determination and um and determination to rely on your own power even if that's kind of foolish given the circumstances like the you know there's something that that strength in i probably shouldn't be doing this but i'm doing it because it is my duty to do it yeah is just fantastic well and going up in a situation in which it's like it's against you like the quote-unquote field of play as as Ugh, travers likes to yeah. call it you know is determined by the monsters the monsters being the uh the watchers council and kralik you know um this is his home mm-hmm. field you know and she has to go in there and fight it and the same thing with clarice and silence of the lambs mm-hmm. you know um but the but again going back to this like here she is She's coming to, you know, quote unquote, grandmother's house, with, not with sweets, but with power. And she has her power. She has that mm-hmm. cross. Right. And he holds it against himself. We get that whole like masochistic sexual gratification thing where he is comparing his power, which is rape and domination, you know, against her power, which is death, mm-hmm. you know, and mocking yeah. it. But her power is serious. And so then when he says to her, you don't seem to understand your place in all of this. It's like, no she understands you don't understand and then that's the moment of course that he is eaten from Mm -hmm. within he is burned up from within because she gave him a you know a poison pill 
So I actually really like all of that because Little Red Riding Hood is, you know, one of the classic tools of the patriarchy, you know, um, to dominate and control women through stories, which, of course, are the most powerful force on Earth. I've had that run before. <laughs> I'm not going to do it now. Um, and so when you when you use the stories to um, to control women from within right? You know, you make them afraid. So they do your work for you. Mm -hmm. You know, she is actually reversing all of that. She's not bringing sweets. She's bringing power. It is from within him that he is then destroyed. You know, she poisons him rather than him poisoning Mm -hmm. her. So it really is like, I kind of love the way this takes all of this stuff from Little Red Riding Hood and subverts it and aims that gun back at the very thing that does need destroying, which is this patriarchal mindset from which women are poisoned from within. So kind of love that. So we destroy the patriarchy with that. (laughs) And then we support it with the one true love I know. That, that we're kind of getting I was, to. Okay, I'm so, so excited to hear you talk about this because I was, I I had a serious like, okay, what the fuck? I know we've done the, like, I know we've done the, like, romance versus love rap on this show several times. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you've been listening, you've heard it by now. But I was like, okay, wait, what? What? What is going on? Lonnie, yes. help me. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> Fairly uncomfortable. Right. Well, okay, the one true love myth, and this is like, this relates to the show, but just let me set it up. Um, the one true love myth is essentially another, you know, patriarchal myth of this idea of there being one true love. And we sell that idea to women because then when you love somebody, when they are your one true love, then any problematic behavior has to be explained away because they cannot be your one true love and also be seriously problematic, right? Because if this is the magic, if this is the soul mate if this is all of that kind of stuff and this is a story that is traditionally sold to women so that they believe that they need this man um, and also that so that they look the other way on the terrible terrible things that this man does because it is cognitively dissonant uh, to believe that he is your one true love your soulmate um, and also a monster and um, I can tell you from absolute personal experience that this is what happened to me we have this thing with um, with Buffy where she's talking about her being weak Right. And she says, if I'm not the slayer, what will I do? What will I have to offer? Why would you like me? Mm-hmm. Right. And the last thing you say is usually the thing that you really mean. Right. right. You know, people work their way up to what is really underneath everything. So usually the last thing that somebody says is the most important, most telling thing. Why would you like me? So her identity as the slayer, as the fighter of monsters, right, as the thing that makes monsters afraid is on the line. But her main concern at this point is keeping her boyfriend interested in her. Right. That's what's really at the heart of her vulnerability with this. Um, And also, baby, if you think he wouldn't love you if you weren't the slayer, then you do not believe that he Mm -hmm. loves you, you know, because loving you should have nothing to do with being the slayer. Um, But this whole run with Angel in this in this moment is just weird. And here's the thing. Him liking her before she was the slayer when she was even younger than she is now she's like 15 Mm -hmm. at that point right um before being the slayer and gaining her power kind of closed the power differential between them uh that's something that you have to seriously whistle past and disregard with this relationship because it is super creepy he says you walked down the steps and i loved you because i could see your heart and i'm like but you couldn't see that she was a child (laughs) 
She's 15. You know, this is this is the problem that I have with the Buffy Angel relationship. And it's not so much about it's, yeah. for me it's not so much about the the age gap. It's he should know mm-hmm. better. Like he's 240. Yeah. He has been around. He has seen some shit. Right. Like he should know better. So often in these Buffy Angel situations, I'm just like, wait, I mean, because they want, you know, yeah, I they can... want him to seem right. like he's 20. They want him to be like, yeah. you know, frozen in time. But even but... 20, even 20 with 16. He like, should I'm sorry. Know you know, like I I meet someone who's 15 years younger than me and I'm like, you know what? You're great, but that's just too much. You know? <laughs> like, and that's at this age. When you're at that age, the difference between like 16 and 20 is huge. Now, here's the thing. We've had this discussion before. I think that a big part of the reason why age difference is a problem is because of life experience and because there's a huge power differential. And it is much, much easier for somebody who's 20 to take advantage of somebody who's 16 based on the lack of life experience that like a 16 year old would have the lack of knowledge and understanding. Right. Um, So, I mean, that's a big problem in like regular real life. When you look at Buffy and Angel after she's been the Slayer for a while, after she's had all these experiences which have aged her which have taken away her innocence whether it's sexual innocence is not the only kind of innocence that is out there um, life experience innocence is also a thing and once she has lost that life experience innocence she has experienced this you know um, the doing of these things she is for all intents and purposes older and he is still 241 <laughs> Um, that's like a thing, but like you can sort of whistle past it when she's, you know, 17. Oh, she was 16 when they got together. Um, you know, when she's been the Slayer for a while, when she's had these experiences, the idea that he saw her when she was 15 and was instantly taken with her and instantly fell in love with her is part of this one true love myth, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that it is instant, that you fall in love immediately and that that is the right person. And what that does selling this myth to people and it is typically sold Mm -hmm. to women although i'm sure some men jump on that you know skateboard too um but but this myth is it's instant i loved you from the first moment that i met Mm -hmm. you and so therefore i am your one true love i am your soulmate which means that everything about me is perfect for you and you can just overlook all of the mm-hmm. red flags. You cannot see all of the red flags because this is the one true soulmate love, right? right? Um, that is very damaging. And that is how like really destructive people find their way in, you know, because they make you believe in these stories. So the one true love myth, while in this very episode, we are taking the patriarchy to task for the little Red Riding Hood bullshit, right? And absolutely subverting that entire, you know, myth on its head. We are at the same time playing into this, like, seriously damaging one true love myth that we sell over and over and over mm-hmm. again, you know, to um, to basically get people to go along with things that are inherently problematic. And so in this story with Angel, like, and here's the thing, like all the people who are into Buffy and Angel are out there seething. Like, oh, We're Angel's not the podcast okay. for you guys. Like, I like, well, right. I don't know. 
I love Spike, but there's problems with that too. Like, I mean, but the thing is, I think that the Spike problems are actually addressed textually, whereas the Angel problems are not terribly addressed well textually until we get to the end of the season with the breakup and then after when they have interactions in season one of Angel and season four of Buffy, uh, we sort of see the Angel relationship for what it is, I think, a little bit more clearly. But up until then, you know, we're given this star-crossed Romeo and Juliet meant Mm -hmm. to be, you know, um, love story, uh, not love story, romance with uh with angel and buffy um and so because we're sold this as this heightened romance that all of the destructiveness within that story we sort of sweep past to the point where we have this whole moment here this this you know monologue from him which by the way is also (laughs) truly truly (laughs) fucking terrible I saw your heart and I was afraid it would get bruised and torn and I wanted to cover it with my own and all this kind of stuff. And it is incredible. And then she like hugs him and she's like, that's beautiful. And it was one of these things that's like pretend, like I think meant to be poetic, but not really. And and so they call it out a little bit because she's like, that's beautiful or taken literally incredibly gross. And it is incredibly gross. Both when taken literally and right. metaphorically, because she was right. 15. She was a child. She did not have the life experience at that time that makes this relationship sort of work when you squint, yeah. you know, when you squint and give it fiction, you know, give it plot armor, <laughs> give it fiction armor, you know, that this is the story that we're telling. So just just buy do, in or you don't get the good feelings. Do you want to hear the story angel. or not? Um, is which, what I call it. <laughs> like, exactly. Do you want to hear the story or not? Is this a exactly. kissing book? Um <laughs> So, so all of this stuff with, with one true love is essentially a big, huge problem. So in the same episode in which we are, we are really actively looking at the patriarchy and taking it down, we're also allowing it in through the side door. Yeah. So, yeah. It is especially noteworthy how the one true love myth especially as we get it here is you know as you say sold mostly to women and girls but is also about and is incredibly um heterosexist right because of course Mm -hmm. of course your one true love is someone of the opposite sex and if you are a girl your job Mm -hmm. is to just exist don't do anything he'll just notice you he'll just see your heart and Right. Is this something that's not sold to the queer community? I don't see it. No. Or is it just the queer community has been invisible to this because it is is specifically a tool of the patriarchy to Um, control women? Obviously, I can't speak for all queer people and all queer media, but no. Like, I don't see it. I don't see the, the... One true love. I don't see the oh, soulmate great. narrative, and it's interesting. You know, we were talking about we we're talking about age gaps, um, and I also uh-huh. think that age ga- like the issue of an age gap, changes when you're talking about a queer narrative. In part because you know we have this idea that that the I'm using the biggest air quotes here, like the best way yeah. to have your first sexual experiences is with someone who is your age peer, right? Well, if you are coming right. into mm-hmm. your sexuality as a young teenager and no mm-hmm. one is out, your only options yeah. for engaging with these like sexual and romantic and identity feelings may be with someone who is older. So while I would agree with you and maybe this, like maybe Uh this makes me, you know, like I'm owning my own bias here, but like, I feel like a, like a, a 16 and a 20 year old 
feels different in the context of heterosexuality, where it is presumed that you have more opportunities for interaction with closer age peers, right. that feels less acceptable within a heterosexual relationship than it would in a queer relationship. That is such an interesting perspective. And here's the thing, too, though, because of the power differential, mm. right? Like, um, part of that is that um, an older man holds power in two ways, life experience and being a man versus a woman in a heterosexual right. context, right? But when you have, so two men have a power differential kind of like, you know, laid out there, like the, the gender power differential is not an issue with two men and it's not an issue with two women because they're at the same general societal power mm -hmm. level. Right. Um, so the differential becomes just about the age and not age and gender. You know, which can so that can lighten things up, but also this idea that like, yeah, as you're coming into your sexuality as a kid, no one's out. The only people that are out are older. So your only opportunity to have that experience is with somebody who's older. So you kind of have to take that stigma mm -hmm. out, you know, that like predatory sense, you know, and I think that sometimes if you have like women who are a little bit older than the mm -hmm. guy like if you see you know and, and part of that comes from to this incredibly destructive idea that uh, men can't be raped that men can't be taken advantage of um where you have like you know your pamela smarts mm -hmm. right you know the the teacher who ends up sleeping with the kid um you know and um that also is a huge power differential but if you have like if you have a 20 year old male and a 16 year old girl versus a 20-year-old woman and a 16-year-old mm -hmm. male, just instinctively, the latter doesn't feel quite as bad. And it may be because of uh, some kind of decrease in that gender power differential. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, it's interesting when we talk about relationships. And when I say we, I mean, like all of us, the general we, you know, all of us. Right. When mm -hmm. we talk about relationships and what is and is not okay, I think we really show mm -hmm. our biases. It's very, very interesting yes. to me to see, like, and I'm I'm including myself in this when I say, like, oh, well, but, like, this right. romance, like, this fictional romance is okay and this one is not. And I'm calling out right. an age difference or I'm calling out, you know, the sexes mm -hmm. of the characters involved or the, you know, the gender identity or presentation or, you know, anything like that. Like, it's just, it's an interesting conversation and it's something to... um you know, reflect on, but back to Buffy and Angel, you know, back to Buffy and Angel, you know, everyone here knows mm -hmm. how I feel about Buffy and Angel. Don't really care, whatever. Not, it doesn't work yeah. for me. But this moment, so, <laughs> you know, you mentioned it, his horrible speechifying about, oh, it's, God, so it's so bad. Terrible. It's so bad. A man who sits and reads poetry <laughs> all the time should be better. Should just be better at that. But when he says, you Ugh. know, she says, you know, take it or taken literally incredibly gross. He says, I was just thinking that too. And I see this right. wonderful look on his face. <laughs> it feels like one of, it feel, for me, for my money as a viewer, it feels yeah. like one of the first real relationship moments for Buffy and Angel. Yes. That backpedaling vulnerability with humor because you realize right. that like, oh shit, like maybe I just went over the top with that. Like, because <laughs> really what it is, is it's like yeah. I'm having all these big feelings and I just want to express like... For, like giving Angel yeah. the benefit of the doubt, right? It's like I'm I'm having all these big feelings. Mm -hmm. I want to. I can't express physically my love for you because I'm worried about right. you know the the sex negative 
Romani curse, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I'm going right. to try to, with flowery language, because I can't touch <laughs> you, impress upon you the depth of my love and affection. And shit, I overdid it like that. Because, right. And you know, I think we've, I think we've been there. Like I think we've all been there at some sure. point in in a relationship, whether it's romantic or right. not. Where you're like, I'm just gonna bear my soul. Oh shit, I went too far. <laughs> Right. That didn't come out the way that I meant it to. I thought it was going to be great. And also, you know, writing poetry on the fly, (laughs) you know, fine. And the fact that they acknowledge it, because I mean, there's two problems with it. One is the textual problem of, wow, this is really terrible and gross in a million different ways. And I cannot even deal with all of the gross. It's like Lucy in the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) All of the gross things that are flying at me at this moment are really, really tough to handle. Um, But then there's also like the the extra textual of it that like a writer wrote those words like on purpose, like you know and so like I think that they were they were deliberately making them bad so that they could get that joke at the end um but at the same time it's like I'm not sure that because uh, we just had this whole scene where Angel gives Buffy a book of poetry where we know she doesn't enjoy poetry and then she says and it's a wonderful opportunity for me to learn new words like henceforth you know that kind of thing so she's actually mocking it like she's not if she was into poetry that'd be great but she's not he's giving her the wrong gift it is not a Buffy gift it is a gift that he likes and he wants to give her something that he likes so that's strike one strike two is I fell in love with you when I was 240 years old and you were 15 before you (laughs) became the Slayer that's strike two strike three is now he expresses this in this absolutely terrible poetic language which for somebody who loves poetry so goddamn much should be like he should know at least when it's bad and not say it like it's one thing to not be able to write poetry I can't write poetry I don't write poetry I'm terrible at it I know my limitations like he should know if he can appreciate good poetry he should know what is bad poetry and that shit was bad Um, and so he says all of that stuff to her while going like on romantically waxing poetic about her as a child Um, so all of it, all of it's bad and all of it takes the whole Buffy and Angel romance down. It's one of the things that I whistle past because of one true love myth, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I'm like, okay, well it's Angel. So it has to be okay because they are one true soulmates, which of course, as we move on in this series, we discovered, no, they are not, uh, because that shit doesn't exist, but it's that story that makes you whistle past all of the truly dangerous, makes you whistle past the fact that it's a wolf my how big your eyes are you know the better to see you with well you're my one true love so I guess that's okay boy how big your teeth are red flag number two the better to eat you with there you go and that's what happens so it so it is actually playing into all of the things that that little red riding hood sees in the wolf you know, that she calls out specifically that he says, no, 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 I'm your one true love. That's just for, you know, Um, it all comes together in this way that is both, I think, a conscious and deliberate movement on the part of the writers with the, you know, kind of reframing of the Little Red Riding Hood myth, which is beautifully done, while at the same time completely embracing the one true love myth, which is how Little Red Riding Hood gets into this shit in the first place. So there you go. Now we can move on to the cruciamentum, right? <laughs> 
which is a fabulous <laughs> word, by the way. Good job. I mean, it Christian is. Mentum. It is. You did a little I etymology did. I did. on this, I mean, did you not? You, you, can, yeah. you can hear it. You know, you don't need to have, have studied Latin to hear, you know, crucio in there. Yes. Crucify or torture. Cruciamentum mm-hmm. means torture, torment, and pain. And it's also the go. name of an English death metal group formed in 2005. So, All right. Well, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Good for but, them for having some, like, Latin roots in their name and, yeah. and pulling in some some intellectual history there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we open up with this with Giles talking to Quentin. It's an archaic exercise in cruelty, and that is exactly what it is. This is designed, this ritual is designed to kill slayers before they become 18. Yeah. Right? Before yeah. they get their own power, before they suddenly look at the the Watcher's Council and say, I just realized I don't need you. <laughs> I don't need you to give me access to my power. I don't need you. And we're going to see this, you know, come to fruition in season five when uh, Buffy actually gives the Watcher's can- Council the final what for that they were afraid of in the first place, which is mm-hmm. why they do this at 18, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting these Slayers killed at 18 means that you get a fresh Slayer, less likely to call you on your bullshit, more malleable and more controllable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so all of this is um, is you know, a complete expression of the patriarchy. Like this is exactly how the patriarchy works, you know, knock them down, take their power away before they realize that they don't need you to access their power, you know, make sure that they think that you are the gateway to their power and then they will stay in line. Um, And so I found it absolutely. And again, like I hate it. But I have the <laughs> appreciation that it is an absolute perfect representation. Of course, with the Watchers Council being white, British, and male. Oh, of course, they're British. The biggest of course, flag they're British. <laughs> biggest flag bearers for the patriarchy for this bullshit, right? Um, so, oh, yeah, God. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely perfectly done. And it fills me with righteous fury while at the same time appreciating yeah. how well done this is as a story element. It's a great story element. And it raises a question for me. You know, just metaphorically, like, is there such a thing as an untraumatized adult woman? Because this happens to Slayers at 18, right? This happens as they're becoming adults. And, you know, Quentin says, you know, she'll be better for it. And Giles says, or she'll be dead for it. Right. Those are the only choices. You survive to adulthood completely traumatized by having your power stripped away and being forced to fight with no power whatsoever, or you die. Like, those are your choices as a girl. And, like, talk about... I mean, talk about like a crunchy question for right. the masses, right? Like, no one makes it out alive, you know. Like, a women do women survive to adulthood without trauma? Like, I, I don't, don't, I don't, I don't know think that they anybody, do. I don't, I don't know that do. anybody who is not of the, um, who doesn't tick all the boxes, right? If you don't tick all the boxes then there's no way because the society, like, you know, the, the white male, uh, cishet, you know, like all of these, all of these boxes that are, um, identities of power, Mm -hmm. right. 
If you don't take all of the identities yeah. of power, you don't make it out of childhood untraumatized because mm -hmm. the world is essentially um, abusive. I mean, culturally, we are abusive. It's an abusive culture. If you live in this Western culture, you are in an abusive relationship. Um, and often that uh, that abuse is turned on yourself, internalized misogyny, internalized racism, all of that stuff. You become complicit. You become co-opted in it the way that Giles is co-opted into this patriarchal, you know, watcher cruciamentum bullshit right yeah um so it's it's really well expressed but also you know i would say i i personally don't think that men even men who took all the boxes get through uh, life without trauma, because uh, there are things, there are myths that we sell to men about what they need to be. They can't be emotional. They can't express emotion. Uh, you can't cry. You can't um, be interested in things that are quote unquote feminine. Um, if you like dance, if you like drama, if you like knitting, then suddenly you're somehow less of a man. If you express your emotions, you're somehow less of a man. So men in the end also do um, end up, I think, experiencing trauma at the hand of culture and the culture is also abusive to them but the difference is that for the box tickers they get to choose their form of abuse they get to choose <laughs> yeah they because what it is is it's about strength right. right it's about strength and power that these are the things that make you strong and powerful and you cannot be quote-unquote weak in these particular ways although expressing emotion is of course not weakness it is strength um, but it is not strength the way that that this classic vision of how people should be based on their what identities they tick, mm -hmm. um, you know. So I would say that no, nobody gets out of this culture untraumatized, but that the the people who end up the men, the tick, the box tickers, right? <laughs> you know, all of these things, these identity tickers, yeah. um, the identity tickers end up in a space where um, where their abuse actually gives them more power, and then they have the power to then lord it over everybody else. So while I don't think anybody escapes into adulthood untraumatized, um, I do think that the the very specific kinds of trauma that most of the people who don't tick all the boxes um, end up experiencing actually disempowers them, whereas the trauma that the box tickers get um, empowers them in, in very destructive ways. But yes, yeah, so that's yeah. that's my whole theory off the top of my head. Anyway, yep. go yeah. continue. Well, because <laughs> <As> once, you <laughs> once you have the power, you have to keep the power. If this, yes. if this you know, if the... You know, the Watcher's Council runs on power, so yeah. we got to yeah. keep, we got to And power keep is that. essentially corrosive and destructive, mm -hmm. but somebody's got to have it. So that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Whoa, you <know>? man. <laughs> somebody's got to be in charge, right? But you need somebody who won't abuse that. And we have yet to have that experience of somebody with power not abusing it to at least a certain degree, you know? So it's a, it's a, it, that's a tough discussion for <laughs> like somebody who knows way more about like the world than I do. Um, so back to the cruciamentum, which is a conversation I can actually participate in uh, with some. <laughs> what did you think about all of this? Oh my God. Just, just the bullshittiest. The bullshit. Yes. Like, what the. So does it fill you with fury or are you, is this a situation where you are infuriated by it or where you appreciate how well it's done and how well it reflects on reality? I mean, it got me to it got me to the question of like what does it mean to be an untraumatized adult right. woman and i'm using mm -hmm. the word woman like really really broadly i know it's hard right. to talk it's hard to talk about humans without kind of falling into the binary language but you know y'all yes. know mm -hmm. what i mean i hope right <laughs> i mm -hmm. hope um yeah it got me to that question of like what does it mean to reach adulthood 
without some sort of trauma, some sort of like mm-hmm. pulling back the the veil of childhood that that childhood um unselfconsciousness and you know com- maybe confidence in one's own power not that that happens right on the stroke of 18 for everyone that is a slow mm-hmm. process but of course this is a metaphor because fiction um <laughs> no i have i mean what the fuck watchers council like that's really where i you know like basically i came down on the side of oh so the slayers really are just disposable they yes. really are like yes that's it okay yes. wow like that's right really well they really are gross. yeah they are they're just disposable well, and we're not even pretending that they're not you know yeah. it's not like we're not gonna pretend that this girl is all special and you know mm-hmm. whatever no she's still we're if still they gonna don't treat get killed her on like their own dirt right. yeah mm-hmm. if they don't get killed by the time they turn 18 we will set up this death trap essentially yeah yeah and uh why? I mean, yeah, to keep to keep the powerful <laughs> watchers in power. It's bullshit. No. Fury. <laughs> like, <laughs> Fury with a side of, like, deep appreciation. Right. <laughs> and if we haven't experienced enough Fury, we have actually invited the Watchers Council to advertise on our program. Because you know what? We need the money. So here you go. This episode of Still Pretty is brought to you once again by thewatcherscouncil.com. Yes, yes, we know. You hate us. Blah, blah, patriarchy. Blah, blah, pretentious. Blah, blah, hashtag salary for slayers. You can Instagram your displeasure all you like. It really doesn't matter to us. We work in shadow and keep the world safe from unspeakable horrors by hiding far, far away and going through slayers like so much tissue paper. Eventually, the world will catch up with us, but it hasn't yet. So we're just going to keep on doing what we've always done. Tradition is tradition for a reason. That's because it works. So why don't you just give up and give in and visit thewatcherscouncil.com using the code CRUCIAMENTUMFTW, giving you a 20% increase in price, and buy yourself a nice Kiss the Librarian mug or something. We're going to get your money anyway. We always do. Or, if you must nevertheless persist, you could choose to take your money and give it directly to Chipperish Media so they can keep making these... What do they call them again? Podcasts. Oh, yes. Podcasts, which I understand are all the rage at the moment. Anyway, this uh, chipperish media. Is that a word? I believe it's derived from the original Greek. No, chipperish is apparently not a real word, but it is a real company that makes shows like this one that you're listening to now, along with Still Dead about Angel, Listen Up A-Holes about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Orgasm about something called Explosive Inspiration, and oh, they even have a Star Wars podcast. Metaphors be with you. I've heard of Star Wars. Delightful. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. But I don't recommend it. I hear they've got a hellmouth there. And without the Watchers Council on your side, the world can be a very dangerous place. We were young 
and needed the money, okay? <laughs> we were young and needed the money. Look, if you want to advertise with Still Pretty, just get in touch. We'll put your ad up. But until then, we got to do what we got to do. And that means letting the Watchers Council speak uh, on our show. Um, all right. So, Noelle, uh, we've talked about the men. We talked about the patriarchy. We talked about Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, let's, you know, take it down a little bit and maybe uh, speak a little bit about Joyce. How did you feel about Joyce in this episode? Oh, God. Once again, Joyce is just whatever we need her to be. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, okay, you know, one minute she's burning her daughter at the stake. And now it's like, like, I don't even I can't. (laughs) That's what I've got. I'm just like, I'm so I'm so irritated. Yeah. With the like like I feel like I'm being yanked around on this Joyce chain of like what is she gonna do this week? Which what, Joyce who, are we getting this which week? Which Joyce right? are we getting? What is happening? And we have like, you know, I mean, okay, we have sweet Joyce. We have mm-hmm. um boundary violating Joyce who reads Buffy's messages from right? her father. It's uh, all right there in the letter. Uh, it's what? all right there in the letter. <laughs> it's one thing to be like your dad called me and told me, you know, blah yeah. blah blah. But to say it's all right there in the letter that I read that was privately addressed to you <laughs> it was addressed on this to you. <laughs> on this day that represents your uh, you know like you're coming into adulthood as an 18-year-old, oh I thought I would treat you like a tiny tiny child that needs it read to them, you know. Um, so, but then we've got like right on the heels of that, uh, Buffy has been abandoned once again by her useless father. Um, and Joyce says, well, I could take you. And Buffy's like, no, I don't want to go to the, you know, I don't want to go to the show with my mom. And she really wants a dad. And then she goes, of course, and asks Giles to take her, which he completely doesn't ignores because he's too like, you know, kind of distracted by his own betrayal and, and wretchedness. Um, So we have can't Joyce. talk right now. Gotta right. gaslight you. Right. So we have Joyce in this moment where she's like, you know, offering to take Buffy to this thing that means so much to her and, you know, and is rejected summarily because she is mom and not dad, you know, and taking that rather well, you know. Um, and then we have her, of course, dangled as the damsel in distress. So she is simply damseled for a while. Yep. Then Buffy comes into the basement where her mother has been tied up by a serial killer vampire, which I realize... You know, it was a little bit redundant, but he was a serial killer before he was a vampire. So let's just like put those things together. Um, and as soon as Buffy lands in the basement, she looks at her daughter, who she, I presume, knows is smart and capable and says, Buffy, we have to get out of here. No kidding, Joyce. Do you think? Right. <laughs> Buffy just showed right? up because she wanted to have some popcorn and watch Love Actually. I don't know what that was about. So we have this moment where we need to make her incredibly stupid. Like you could give her any line. But I will tell you something. Had it been Giles who was damseled in this episode and Buffy had to come in and save him, we would never have given a line that stupid to Giles. No. Buffy, we have to get out of here. Really? Like the fact that we even give that line to Joyce just speaks to how little we care about Joyce and how little we've done to kind of build up any kind of, of, you know, story for her. Not to mention the fact that we're, we are just coming off a week where she tried to have Buffy burned at the stake and we're acting like nothing has happened. Now I, yep. I guess there is some bit of, you know, and they acknowledge at the end of gingerbread, some bit of, you know, retroactive amnesia where people just don't remember all but of the things that happen. Still, but like, it's, it's um, dumb. An angry mob is not going to remember. I mean, you guys, don't remember come on. trying to burn your daughter. 
in City Hall. <laughs> like that's a weird. Unless you think it's, it's a dream, and because it is so weird, it could you could mistake it for a fever dream. Like it's I don't know. Like how do you how do you not remember that? But then again, Joyce has also been in love with Xander and tried to kill people to to get to Xander. Um, <laughs> True. There's a True. lot of things that have happened to Joyce that wow. she's just had to whistle yeah. past. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I guess you just let it go, but still, it just it drives me crazy. But we have like a nice moment at the end, you know, where she is really proud of Buffy for the whole holy water shenanigans, right? You know, and she's like, "Oh, tell them, tell them," you know. Um, so I like that in Joyce that she's very proud of Buffy and that she likes what Buffy did. But overall, I'm looking at this and I'm like, who is who even is Joyce? Like none of this. It, again, she is like. She is the vending machine. She is the, yeah. the conflict vending machine, the narrative vending machine. She just does whatever it is that she's told to do. She stands on her cue. And somehow Christine Sutherland makes all of this, because at this point, three seasons in, had a lesser actress been p- playing this character, I would be like, just kill her now. You know, <laughs> just get her out of the way. Buffy's 18. She can handle it. Like, like, oh, my God. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, you know. Uh, so Christine Sutherland is the only thing holding Joyce together at all. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that Buffy, we have to get out line would have worked if Joyce had not been so lucid like if she had been tortured you know if we got the idea right. that she'd been tortured for you know a couple mm-hmm. of hours you know if she was just like barely there you know Buffy we have to get out yeah. kind of that could have maybe worked but yeah they don't Joyce is and, just there yeah. to be whatever they need Joyce to do that week exactly and they just gave her a line to give her a line but it is the most unbelievably stupid line <laughs> You know, and I mean, you know, and if Joyce, if Joyce said something helpful, like, no, he has to take these pills or, you know, I've been sitting yeah. here for three hours just thinking about what this guy's weaknesses are like to, to give us the idea that maybe Buffy's capability comes from somewhere. Sure. Isn't right. her dad like maybe she's been raised to be I mean, granted, like a lot of really capable people come from very stupid parents. It happens. You know, I mean, I get it like it's but it would be nice since Joyce is somebody that we're supposed to be invested in that when she gets kidnapped by a murderous vampire and again, redundant, but still um, <laughs> that when she gets kidnapped, I should care. I should be like, you know what? I would really like Joyce to live through this experience at this point. I'm like, nah, I don't care. You know, whatever. Just get rid of her. I don't care. She's she's so terrible. What they do with her is so terrible. If it wasn't for Christine Sutherland, I just honestly would not care. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Okay. I'm right there with you. Like, All right. So let's switch it's to the so other sad. parent. I know. Let's switch to the other parent and talk a bit about Giles, about Dad Giles, about oh, textually God. acknowledged Dad Giles. Oh, God. It's so sweet. I love... Oh my God! The the come with me to the ice show and be my dad is so I know, like, that oh. bid for parental connection from Buffy, which really? he is so he's so tormented by the betrayal that he's exper- that he's like you know conducting at that very moment that he can't even see that she's just made this bid for connection with him. It is so sad. The whole thing it's so heartbreaking, but it's so beautiful and how torn up he is by what he's done to her. How terrible he feels you know um and and i will work to get your trust back you know to earn that trust. and that's the thing he doesn't say buffy forgive me he says i will work to earn your trust back and that is how it's done joe fucking biden take some notes that's how it's done (laughs) 
Not, it is your job to forgive me. It is my job to earn your forgiveness. Yep. That is how that shit is done. So I loved <laughs> all of it. I loved all of Giles, everything. I mean, even the betrayal, because the betrayal, he was doing what he was told. He was so internally conflicted. He hated all of it. He was trying to, like, be the good watcher while at the mm -hmm. same time, like, you know, knowing that it required this betrayal of this kid that he loves. You have a father's love for the child. Oh, my yeah. God. That that just tore me up. So tell me what oh, you thought about God. Giles, because I will just okay. go on like this all day. <laughs> so Anthony Stewart had plays post-injection Giles as sinister. Yes. Um, and I know the music and the camera angle are doing some of the work there, but he's got this little, like, Hannibal Lecter half smile on his face that creeps my shit out. It's not okay. <laughs> yes. But he's so checked out in that scene. Yes. I'm choosing to read this as Giles disassociating a little. Because well, he'd yeah. have to in order to poke his pseudo daughter with a needle full of drugs. No, like, he really would. And the thing is, is that like the choices, the music, you know, the, the angle, because we're coming up from underneath, which makes him look more powerful and more sinister. Like all of the choices that the television show has made in presenting this moment are mm -hmm. giving us the sinister vibe. Plus the fact that mm -hmm. we just saw him inject Buffy, like that cannot be good under mm -hmm. any circumstances cannot be good. Um, so the TV show is like deliberately fucking with us, you know, and doing this bit of not entirely playing fair. But if you look at Giles, like just his expression, it does. It is this very flat. So I think Anthony Stewart head is blameless here. I think the TV show is lying and fucking with us and trying to make <laughs> us think that Giles has actually gone bad. Anthony Stewart head just simply has a, a shut down expression on his face, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when I watched, cause I was watching very carefully for that, like, is he twirling a mustache at any point in this performance? <laughs> and he is, he isn't, he's, no. he's very, very shut down. I mean, you know, weird, we don't get clarity that he feels bad. We don't see guilt and shame on his face until later, you know? Um, and also like in the next scene that we have, he's arguing with Quentin Travers. So there really is no need to play this up that much. The TV show is clearly, being like Giles went bad you know like yeah. doing that kind of bullshit and so the TV show is lying to us but Anthony Stewart head I hold blameless because the way that he's <laughs> playing it is just that like that expressionless thing that you can choose to read in any way that you want I think it's the smile that gets me it's that little hat like it. I didn't see it as a smile it's like though. it's a tiny yeah. little it's a tiny little like close maybe he has resting smile, smile face <laughs> Resting dad face. <laughs> Resting dad face. Oh, um, I don't know. It just like his something about his facial expression. Like, you know, yeah. and of course, the you know, the the shot composition is doing some of the work there. But I don't know. Yeah. I read it as creepy. But I also like, I don't know. There's so much there's so much in Giles's like narrative here that we don't mm -hmm. really get. It's all just implied. You know, the idea yeah. that like on paper. When this was just in his, like, watcher's handbook. Right. That it was, you know, maybe maybe it made sense on paper. Right. Because there wasn't an actual, you know, human pseudo-daughter sitting there in front of right. him that he had mm -hmm. to inject. You know, maybe it's, because it's, I mean, it's definitely easier 
to do something in theory than it is in practice. Well, he says that. He says that to Travers. Yeah. He's like, I'm the one that's here. I'm the one that has to do yeah. this. You yep. know? Yeah. Yep. Um, I would also just love to know, like, does her Slayer Healy magic keep her from needing a cotton ball and a Care Bear Band-Aid? Does that poke just oh, <laughs> close right up? Like, you do not poke someone and not at least give them a sticker. Exactly, or a lollipop or something. (laughs) A balloon, come on. A (laughs) balloon. You were a brave girl today, yes. Yeah, yeah, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a heartbreaking turn in their relationship. I mean, when she's, when when he rescues her, and then we see her in the library, you know, all wrapped in a blanket, and she says, it felt like my arm was broken. It hurt so mm-hmm. much. She looks like she's cried for yeah. hours. Yeah. And then he tells her. Then he mm-hmm. tells her, you know, it's a test. And when he tells her, the only other thing in the frame with him is the American flag. Yeah. Can you say possibly accidental cultural commentary? Right. I mean, like, Perhaps. wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, you know, I'm reminded of the way that many little girls are, you know, pretty unselfconscious and unafraid. And then as they grow up, you know, they realize that they're living in a misogynist society where they're literally in danger just walking home at night. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and the betrayal by a parental figure is part of that trauma. You know, it's an unintentional betrayal, but it's that sense of like, why didn't you warn me? Because presumably mm-hmm. parents know the realities of society yeah. and don't tell their children because they want to preserve that. Because, right. Innocence. That under, under the, you know, this like false idea of we can protect them. Like, I'm going to protect this child. I'm going to preserve their innocence. The longer you preserve that innocence. And again, I'm not talking sexual innocence. That is not the only connotation for innocence. Um <laughs> But to preserve that innocence for as long as possible, the longer you preserve it, uh, the more traumatic the eventual understanding of the world as it is, is going to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, and that the the whole scene where he mm-hmm. confesses to her yeah. what's going, I'm just, I love, I love that he shows her the mm-hmm. syringe full yes. of so he tells her what he's and then she throws it at his, at his oh, head. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love when she throws at him. I love when she says, Who are you? Yeah. And then at the end, and then when Cordelia comes, how did they manage this? How did they manage in the middle of the most heartbreaking betrayal? This scene between Giles and Buffy, which is so devastating to have Cordelia come in and be like, he's Giles, Giles, and it works (laughs) and it's funny and it's perfect. And then when Buffy says, Cordelia, can you give me a ride home? And she just goes, of course, like her empathy engages immediately. You know, she's like, but if the world doesn't end, I'm going to need a note. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love Cordelia just snapping into supportive friend mode it's yeah that is so great and that's part of the reason why the humor works i think yeah because she comes in and she's being her you know goofy cordelia self and then when buffy you know clearly needs help she's like on it yeah you got it yeah yeah ride home no problem (laughs) 
it's just so incredibly sweet. And then we get to this at the end, right? You know, where he, um, where Quentin tells him that Buffy went to the house, you know, to, to go get her mother. Uh-huh. Well, he doesn't know that at the time. Um, and Giles is just like, no, that's it. You know, I'm leaving. And he leaves Quentin there and Quentin's just like, well, I'll just sit here and sip my tea then, you know, like, <laughs> fucking useless piece of garbage. Um, <laughs> but at the end, you know, Buffy has passed her test. Right. Giles has failed his, you know, Mm -hmm. and he fires Giles. Your affection for your charge has rendered you incapable of clear and impartial judgment. You have a father's love for the child. And the look on Buffy's face when he says that. Oh, God. (laughs) It's all so wonderful. It's so good. It's so good. And I mean, and Giles being willing just to dive right in i mean mm-hmm. it, like, i mean you you raised the question of you know like was he gonna tell her like is he gonna right would he, like would he, would he have confessed if krellick hadn't escaped because he confesses then right that he escapes yeah right and like that's that's chilling to think about mm-hmm. and then there's the there's the moment when giles goes to the house and sees what has happened or is that before is that before he rescues her from the street i don't remember but there's this beautiful shot there's this beautiful shot where giles puts his hand on the banister and then lifts it up and he literally has blood blood. on his hands and i'm like yes like that is so i i love a good visual storytelling beat i love it there you go yeah literally no blood on his literally has blood on his hands it's fantastic and i also like here we have he goes in right he sees the you know we just see the bloody arm but apparently whatever that vision is the dead the gym i guess to to dwight's dwight right assistant to the regional (laughs) vampire um and uh, so whatever happened to Jim is like apparently really bad because Giles, who has seen some shit, let's not forget, starts right. to gag, right, and runs out in horror. And then later on, we see Buffy go in that exact same room, the exact same shot, lined up the exact same way. She looks at that body <laughs> and she's like, no time, no time for this shit. I got to get things done. Yep. And so we have that, you know, that comparison between, and I mean, you know, when you're in the middle of a crisis, obviously you don't have time. Giles was not in the middle of an active crisis at that moment so he was allowed to like respond to it but i love how we we show buffy and buffy is all fucking business like she is getting it done you know um and i like that but the thing is that like that also is traumatizing when you are in the middle of a crisis and cannot deal with mm-hmm. the things that would traumatize you they don't not traumatize you it just gets shut off into a crate yeah. until you deal with it later, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so she has to carry that and get shit done. And what is expected of Buffy, I think there's there's kind of a, a flashlight, you know, shown on what it is that that is expected of Buffy when we have that comparison shot between how Giles sees that and how Buffy mm-hmm. responds to that. Yeah, um, especially it's, it's because Buffy good. in that moment is in regular, regular yeah. person mode. She's yeah. not yeah. even, she, she doesn't have heightened slayer sense or any of that she doesn't have slayer powers but she's still the slayer yeah yeah Yeah. 
So no, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good stuff. Um, all right. So winding this up as we are running a little bit long, but it's such a good episode. There's so it's much so to talk good about. and there's so much um, in it. <laughs> there's so much. All right. So Willow, Xander, Oz, Cordelia. We had a little bit of Cordelia, right? So we've talked a little bit about Cordelia. Uh, but here we've got the sidekicks who are in all for all of like 30 seconds in this yeah. whole thing. You know, we have Willow, which I absolutely love. I love her getting so excited <laughs> yeah. over, over turning 18. You can vote now. You can be drafted. You can vote not to be drafted. Like, yep. <laughs> I love her excitement over civic responsibility. Um, I love her, you know, freaking out over Giles getting fired, which oh is like God. one of my favorite things. I absolutely love that. So I think it's very fantastic. Willow. Mm-hmm. I love her gushing over Amy the rat. I know. And you can tell Willow has never had a pet. It's right. Aside from the fish that Angelus killed. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but those aren't really, you can't pick them up and pet them. Yeah. You know, they're just yeah. the fish. They're pretty. Yeah. But yeah. She's mm-hmm. not, yeah, she's not turning Amy back into a person, but she got I her know. a little bell. But she got her a wheel. <laughs> yes. a wheel. It's very, very cute. So Willow is fantastic. And, um, and so I love everything Willow. And that's basically all we get, except for this one moment when Buffy, when they're all researching in the library yeah. and Buffy's trying to figure out what's happening to her. And then Willow steps aside with her and Buffy's like, well, if I'm not the slayer, you know, it's a mixed blessing because, and then Willow's like, yeah, you know, she's like, oh, I think you're totally going to get your powers back. But if you don't, mm-hmm. it could open up this whole thing. And then she's in right. the middle of talking to Buffy about that and is interrupted by Giles when she's looking yeah. at like how this could be a really good thing for Buffy to not be the slayer anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and But I love Buffy's counterpoint to that, that she has seen and experienced things that she yes. can't unsee. Right. I don't so want to be helpless. How, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then how do you move forward as a person yeah. in the world having had this experience? When you know what's, I know what yeah. goes bump in the night. Yeah. Yep. And to not be able to fight it. How do you do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that speaks to a whole, you know, transform the transformative power of knowledge. Yep. You know, I mean, yeah. what that does to you and how that changes you at your core. You know, well, you can't ever yeah. unsee the things that have been seen. Yeah. And that's why we use I mean, that's why when we talk about innocence, the mm-hmm. the tendency is to go to sexual experience. Yes. But it's really but innocence is really about knowledge. Right. Yes, or or it is. lack of knowledge, lack mm-hmm. of clarity of the big picture. Right. Right. Um, you know, experience in general. And when and you that, think of it yeah. in that way, this idea of protecting innocence you know, protecting this, this protecting ignorance, protecting a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding of the world around you, that knowledge is power, even if it's unwanted knowledge, even if Mm -hmm. it's dark knowledge, it is still power. So when we talk about protecting innocence, which by the way, we do with regard to women, with Mm -hmm. girls, more, much more than we ever do with regard to men and boys, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We talk about protecting innocence. That is actually a spin on protecting the male power, Mm -hmm. you know, because if women know, if they understand everything, if they have knowledge, then they can, then they're working on an equal playing field, you know? Mm -hmm. But if we keep them in ignorance, you know, um, if we don't allow them that knowledge, we don't allow them that power to understand and decide how they're going to deal with the world around them. If we keep them in the dark and we call it protecting innocence as though it is a good thing, which in essence it is not, you know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's a whole thing there. Oh, yeah. And we will continue to see that as we move forward yeah. through the series, you know, what you yeah. can, what you have experienced, what you can and can't 
unexperience. You can't unexperience yes. something, but right. you can try and you can cause a lot of trouble in the process. That's very, very <laughs> true. You can do that. We'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, yeah. So we have a little Xander. We have very, very little very Xander. Little Xander. Um, but he's but because so little Xander, he's not really that offensive. Um, he uh, <laughs> he wants to celebrate Buffy's birthday. You know, so he's yeah. all about Buffy. He's very focused on Buffy. And then basically we see him in one other shot with Oz where they're arguing comic books, which is oh adorable. My God. You know, and very and very boy. I'm not gonna say I haven't seen a number of those almost exact conversations in Slack between Rob and Josh <laughs> on the Chipperish Slack. <laughs> Joshua Unruh, my co-host for yeah. uh, for Listen Up A-Holes, the MCU um, Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe podcast, um, and Rob Hyrett, who does our Star Wars podcast, Metaphors Be With You. Yep. Uh, these two will often have discussions, like going deep, deep nerd on um, on these comic book things. So Oz and have... Xander were very much the Rob and Josh experience, I think, <laughs> which was adorable. Rob and Josh may have had that Geek. They might have had that exact conversation. Yeah, yes. the, the the geekery measuring contest over yes. kryptonites. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I love it. I love it's that. Adorable. It's so adorable. It's adorable. So, so that cute. was a really cute thing. Um, and then we have, of course, at the end, Buffy doesn't have her strength. She can't open the peanut butter jar. And he's like, oh, do you need me to do this? You know, and of course, cannot open it and hands it off to Willow. And I think that that is pretty adorable. And it kind of does, you know, put the last note on this, you know, where we stand with the patriarchal bullshit um, mm -hmm. in this in this episode. So I think that that was pretty nice. And I liked yeah. that. Yeah, we hand it off to Willow, who has, like, literally zero upper body strength. <laughs> right, but she's all power, though. Exactly. She's all power. Yep. Willow is all power. Um, and we're going to see great. that as we move forward in the series, uh, <laughs> just get more and more powerful. Um, so we have some cute stuff with Oz. I mean, we just basically get Oz in the in the red kryptonite, green kryptonite discussion yep. with Xander. Um, but we also have this great moment where Buffy is trying to justify her love of the ice show, which, by the way, yeah. love what you love, Buffy. Buffy. love yeah. what you love baby it's okay yeah um, it's fine <laughs> he's just so great he's like it is cool ice is cool it's water but it's not and we just zoom right past it like nothing ever happened <laughs> but it's freaking adorable and I love that with Oz so Oz once again is the perfect man I love him so much uh, um and then we have these great moments with Cordelia is yeah. the world ending I have to research a paper on Bosnia but if the world's ending I'm not gonna bother <laughs> Same, Cordelia. Child. Like I'm not. Mm. <laughs> right. I mean, I love to me some research, but if the world's gonna end, if the no. world's gonna end, I'm gonna do something different. I don't blame her at all. It's just like I'm gonna need a note when she takes Buffy <laughs> home. If the world doesn't end, I'm gonna need a note. Need a note. Um, so that's some absolutely fantastic stuff from a fantastic episode. We are running so long, so let's go ahead and start wrapping this up. Noel, what are you wearing? Willow's fucking pom-pom hat. I cannot. Yes. I cannot. I know. The pom-pom hat and then the yellow hat. I love the yellow hat. And that is the hat. That is the hat that made me start knitting. <laughs> that is the hat. Oh, my God. I learned God. how to knit so I could make the hat. I still haven't made that hat. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about Buffy's amazing Red Riding Hood hooded coat. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. they hit that on the head really, really yes. hard. And I love yes. it. Um. 
And of course, we get the overalls of despair. I love the overalls of despair. The overalls of despair are back. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. I'm into it. Like, this is the thing. And I just, it's not a big deal and it shouldn't matter, but it does to me. When Buffy is slaying in the height of fashion, when she's wearing six inch stiletto heels, well, okay, she doesn't wear stilettos. She wears chunky heels, but still, you know, (laughs) boots and leather and her hair done perfect and her makeup. I love when she's fighting in this episode and she's, and I realize that we have her wearing like drabby clothing because she is weakened. And of course we associate Uh beauty with power and that's a whole other fucking conversation (laughs) that I'm not going to have today. Um, But she's wearing like the, the, you know big like windbreaker and sweatpants when she's fighting with that vampire in the middle of the the episode and I love that I love that she's wearing the overalls I when she wears all this high fashion stuff I'm like how do you fight in that you know this is this is stuff made for strutting this is stuff made for sitting at the bar and having men buy you drinks this is not slaying you know, and uh, it doesn't matter because the fact is that everything in uh, the visuals in a show, in a movie, are about how it feels, not what it is. Yep. So what she's actually wearing doesn't matter. She feels dumpy in this episode. So she's wearing dumpy clothes and she feels hot and sexy in the other episodes. So she's wearing hot and sexy clothes while she slays. Still, I don't care. That's it's just I just like seeing her in something practical for fighting. You love you an know? overall. You don't it. wear it's a gown like... to yoga is what I'm saying. You just don't. You know? Anyway. Anyway, that's my that's my little rant about um <laughs> Buffy's outfits. All right. right. So I think I think the patriarchy we've covered. Yeah. Yeah. fairly well in this. Is there anything else that you had to add to the patriarchy discussion? Oh god. I mean, the whole episode is about the patriarchy. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. the fucking lap dance guys who never get any yeah. comeuppance for that yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> we don't have time for another like rant uh for me about catcalling and yeah. street harassment and all of that. But yeah, like it's all here. It's all here. We yeah. just Yeah, it's all there. Cram it all in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So what's your girl power moment of the week? Bite me. It's just the Aww. best. It's the best little coda for this whole Watchers Council nonsense. I know. He's well, you know what I love? Congratulating her. Ugh. Right. I know. Um, what I love as a as a moment in the patriarchy is the this nod to the power of language and expression. When uh, Buffy says, "I throw knives," like, and Giles says, "A girl," and she says, "Like I'm not the Slayer." Like she sets him down on that. Yeah. This is not about gender. This is about being the slayer. It just so happens that the slayer is a girl and I am a girl, but that doesn't mean that all girls throw knives poorly. Wake up, Giles. <laughs> Get your shit together. Correct yourself. So um, I actually, I really like that that moment. It's very, very nicely done. Um, all right. So Noel, what's your favorite part? Oh, Krolik. I love Krolik. Oh, yeah. He is just, he, he delights me in his horribleness. Yeah, Crawler. no, he is. All the way. He is delightful. Yep. He is He's pretty great. delightful. Um, I have to say that, like, while I love so much in this episode, if I'm if I'm taking a moment, just a moment of the episode, it's uh, it's Cordelia. 
It's just Cordelia coming in. She's so perfectly, somehow the humor that she brings in is so perfectly aligned with the whole thing. She's really funny, but yet empathetic and connected to Buffy emotionally. Uh, Giles. Giles. Like, I just, I love that. I could just, I'm just all day, I'm going to be wandering around the house going, Giles. That's Giles. And my kids are going to be like, whatever. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my favorite part. All right, that's it for today. Join in the discussion on Twitter. Follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Noel at Noel Aloud and use the hashtag stillpretty. Or you can keep Chipperish Media going to the tune of a dollar a month or more and gain access to the live chat in Discord where you can hang out with me and Lonnie and all the Chipperish patrons who, if the world doesn't end, are going to need a note for that Bosnia paper. You can also show your support by giving Still Pretty a great review on Apple Podcasts or by telling your friends about the show or by taking your Slayer to the ice show. <laughs> we will be back next time with the Zeppo, the 13th episode of season three. Until then, if we were at full Slayer power, we'd be punning right now. You know, I just have some Indiana Jones and the Crystal Penis. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to get us too far off topic, but speaking of Indiana Jones movies, do you know that you can replace any word in a title of an Indiana Jones movie with vagina and it works? (laughs) Indiana Jones and the Vagina of Doom. And the Vagina of Doom. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Vagina. Vagina Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh my I have a God. thing for Temple of Doom. The Raiders yeah. of the Lost Vagina. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Vagina Crusade. Well, I'll be here all day just right. doing that. So. Well, and you know, I warned you, we have all these very serious notes because we're getting into very serious yes. stuff in yes, this episode, like trauma and, and more trauma mm-hmm. and mental illness mm-hmm. and addiction and all like these weird these weird things that we're doing with with this vampire narrative mm-hmm. but you know at some point we're just going to talk about vaginas because of course we are it, no absolutely <laughs> eventually it's all going to come down to that <laughs> so buffy has some energy to burn as she tells giles speaking of vaginas i'm sorry you could do that again so i've got an edit point but it was just so funny it was like this silent beat and then you're like so buffy <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Wind them up and watch them go.